the culture of grace or the grace culture. This is, this is what Jesus came and established. In John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. And then in John 1.16, and of his fullness or of that fullness of the glory of God in human flesh, we've all received grace for grace. Or I like the old King James. Grace upon grace. Now, you know, we sort of had to wait and see. Because if the Lord had come and we saw this fullness of God, this glory of God, and it was holiness, I don't think we would have been surprised. I mean, that's what Isaiah saw in chapter 6, a very righteous man. But yet when he saw the fullness of God in that vision, uh, he was overcome with his own sinfulness in comparison. And it did a, a purifying work in his life. John, the great holy apostle, in his elderly years, had a revelation there in the book of Revelation. And he fell down as a dead man. He was overwhelmed constantly at the holiness of God. So had, had God came in his holiness or righteousness or purity or power, that's, that would be a, a good one, you know, come in a powerful way. You know, but yet he didn't. It says grace. Now, it could have been a line of things. He could have came in holiness and purity and righteousness and mercy. And, and we would see this long list like we saw when the Lord gave it to Moses, when he saw the Lord pretty clearly there in Exodus. But he didn't. He said there is one thing and one thing only, and I'm doubling down on it. <laughs> I'm going to come with grace. Yes, the truth, but after the grace. After you understand how much I love you and care for you and my mercies are new every morning and, and just the beautiful um, presence of Jesus. Then once you're established in the grace, then I'm going to start telling you some truth. That's going to be heavy, but it's through the, the lens of grace that I want you to see that truth. And then I want to come back to grace. And I want it to just be a culture of grace. So in essence, when Jesus ministered, this is exactly what we saw. Now, when you, you think of grace... You know, that's obviously God's goodness towards us that we, we don't deserve. You know, I, I think that we say, well, the, the end result of that is just a sense that we're loved, right? That, that God loves us with our warts and all. God loves us, even the things I, I don't do, I do, and the things I do want to do, I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am. We, we sense that every single day. Especially as you get older and you're walking closer with the Lord. You, you, you see him more clearly and you see yourself more clearly. And, and the comparison gets greater in the revelation of, you know, we used to think, well, Jesus died on the cross for me with a sin with a small s, you know. I don't think he had to do a lot of suffering for me. But then as we get older, we realize, no, <laughs> I'm a sinner with a capital S. I'm wicked with a capital W. And, and, and the Lord had to do a, receive a lot of extra whippings because I am truly a sinful person. But when I think about it, the end is just that we, we, are, we just receive this love and then we walk in that love. But I think we really get mixed up with the word love, especially in our uh, American culture with Hollywood telling us that love is a romance. It's a feeling of that first love. I remember when I, I first met my wife and, and I would just ache five minutes away from her. I remember waking up in the morning, couldn't wait to get ready to go see her. And, um, and I can remember after a, a couple of years of dating, we were apart for a summer and, and I was just in agony. 
And then, of course, the honeymoon period after the marriage. That was, that was pretty sweet. But so often as a pastor, I counsel people who say, well, I just don't love them anymore, you know. And in essence, they're saying that feeling I used to have when we first knew each other, that honeymoon period when we were first married, that feeling's no longer there, but now I have it towards my secretary or, you know, my soulmate, um, the person I met and those feelings of, you know, they always say this, I feel like I'm in high school again. I have no idea why they say that. But they lose weight and they're feeling good and they've got this overwhelming surge of feelings. It's not love. That's not love at all. Matter of fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, it says, love suffers long and is kind. In other words, this, there's this non-stopping kindness. Now, you guys are familiar with Galatians 5, where it says the fruit singular of the Spirit is love. And then it gives this long list. It sort of confuses us. Because it looks like the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. All. But I think that the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then all these other things define the love. Right? The joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness. I think the same thing is here. I think he's saying that if I were to put it in a word, it's just an unstoppable kindness. I personally would just ask that a person would be kind to me and you never have to tell me you love me. But so often we'll tell people we love them and then treat them horribly afterwards. But then we can smooth it over by saying, well, you know, I love you. And, and the words actually have sort of a negative meaning almost. It's, it's almost a repulsive. Uh, you know, you, you can sort of say, if they love you, you, can, you know, watch out. They're going to stab you in the back next. I mean, because they're, they're wanting the words to smooth over the fact that they're not being kind to you. And we see this here. It, it tells us, and you sort of think it in the opposite of kindness. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. Or God's unstoppable kindness towards us will never cease. Grace. And so this is what I think that we're looking at. Now when I think about this, I think of David, this man after God's own heart, who did all his will. Now, we know David is one of the biggest sinners in the Old Testament. There's more written about David than anybody else in the Bible. And so we get a, a lot of snapshots of a guy who was a big sinner like me. <laughs> and it's comforting. But yet, he did certain things that were so substantial. You know, when a guy became king... His first act was to wipe out all the relatives, third, fourth cousins of the king before, because you didn't want 30 years later the guy to say, hey, well, I'm a relative of David, or relative of Saul, I should be king. Um, you didn't want that challenge down the road. But David, when he became king, he sought out the relatives of Saul, not to put him to death, but to bless him. And he said, there's got to be some close relative of Saul's surely still alive. And everybody's going, nope, 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 nope. And one guy says, actually, there is one. He's in Lodabar, a place of nothing. He's in serious hiding, living a pretty miserable life. But I don't think you're going to want to choose him because he's lame. Now, we find out in earlier chapters that the nanny, when she heard that Saul and Jonathan and, and the family of Saul was dead, she picks him up. I picture her being like some 400-pound nanny. I don't know. And she starts running with the boy, and she falls and crushes his legs. And he never had the use of his legs after that. And so he said, you're going to, you know, it's not going to really look good around the palace. He's not going to be able to 
go to war for you. I mean, he's really going to have nothing to offer you being crippled in that culture of that time. And David said, that's the guy, go get him. And he brought in this guy, Mephibosheth. And he first said, everything that Saul owned, I'm not touching it. He had spent decades acquiring companies and lands and all kinds of wealth for himself as a lot of selfish kings would do. He says, all of that wealth is still yours. I'm going to start from zero. I'm building my wealth because I'm not going to touch Saul's wealth. It's all yours. But you're really not going to need it because I want you to live in the palace and I'm going to take care of every need and I want you to come to the table as one of my own sons and eat at my table continually. Now, you just got to imagine how the front page news would, would go out and, and, and hear people going, David's doing what? A guy that's lame? You know, Saul's relative? It doesn't make sense, but imagine this culture of grace that David established. That he is basically saying, I want to find somebody who, this Saul, who he couldn't find a guy that was more wicked against another human being. This guy that was just trying to destroy me, drove me literally crazy. I mean, he literally drove David insane. And now I just want to take his children and just bless them with an unstoppable kindness. What a beautiful picture that would have been. Then I think of the, the prodigal son. In this story, we, we see this where this son could not have been more rotten. Dad, I can't wait for you to die. Instead of me having to wait around here until you kick over, can we just pretend you died and just give me the inheritance now? That's, that's pretty rude. And the father says, here it is. And of course, somebody that's foolish is not going to do well. And he went to a foreign land and circumstances eventually brought him into poverty where as a Jew, you would never sink to feeding pigs. That's, that's, you can't get lower than that kind of unkosher job. But as he's feeding the pigs, that slop, that smells pretty bad. He was tempted to eat it himself. But he resisted the urge to eat it, so he didn't want to get fired from feeding the pigs. But then he had a moment where he realized, my dad, he's the kind of guy that would at least make me a slave in his house. The lowest slave. But he'll take me back and say, yeah, go live out with the slaves and, you know, go live with, the, you can be the lowest slave on the totem pole here in, in, in my business. That was the best he could come up with. Well, he came and he had no idea that that father every day was looking to see if there was a shadowy figure with the silhouette of his son. And when he heard he was coming, he was ready. He had a robe, he had sandals, he had a ring. He knew his son would come back not in good condition. Only time we ever see God in the Bible in a hurry is in this story. He runs to his son. Before he can get to town, he decks him out. <laughs> so when the town people see him, they're going to see somebody dressed very well, somebody looking successful. Most importantly, there would be no shame of his son coming back. And there he comes back and he has this feast now, we see that culture of grace. We see this overwhelming, again, over the top. I don't want you to feel shame. I don't want you to come groveling back. You're my son. You'll always be my son. I'm, I'm, I'm stating you right back to full sonship. But we get this contrast with the older brother, don't we? He's staying with the dad. He's working hard. He's the last in out of the field. Everybody else is at the party. 
he comes in from a long work day and, and is just mad. But he reveals his heart. This son of yours who took the bag of money, went to a foreign country and spent it all on prostitutes and wild living is now back. How would he know that? There's only one way he, he, he would come up with that phrase and that's revealing his own heart, what he would do if he had a bag of money in a foreign country. So we realize he's just revealing the sinfulness of his own heart. And that his indignation is not righteousness, but a self-righteousness. But what do we discover? He is not in unity with the Father. And his Father begs him, squeak out just a tiny bit of grace and at least come to the party. There was no grace culture for that older brother. There was only judgment and condemnation. And, and he wanted him thrown away and just out of sight, out of mind. I don't want anything to do with that guy ever. And the father is pushing back and saying, absolutely not. The culture we have here is, is one of taking those who have fallen on their face and restoring them back to the place they were. How deep does God's grace go? Well, you guys know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> and God called fire out of that place and, and destroyed it because of its wickedness. Well, you know, there was another city that was equally on the chopping block, just like that. It was called Nineveh. You guys know Iraq today because of the many decades of war in Iraq. If you go to Baghdad, the big city, and go north about 90 miles, there's a city named Mosul. Until the last few years, it was a Christian community. They had a parade every year to Jonah. According to their tradition, after Jonah was there, he stayed there and pastored them until he died. And they have his grave up on the side of the hill. But in the last few years, ISIS, you know, killed everybody, enslaved everybody, took all the girls and put them on the market. It was, it was horrible, but it was a Christian community. I actually had a lady in our church for a number of years that was from there, and she taught me a lot about it. But God chose the absolute worst guy for the job. <laughs> if you know the history, probably when Jonah was a little boy, the Assyrians had attacked Israel, the northern kingdom, where Jonah was from. And they were brutal. I mean, they would skin people alive and hang their skins on the outside of the, the gates and outside of the wall. I mean, these guys were crazy. I mean, crazy. They were the, the worst of the worst. And so Jonah might have lost his own mother and brothers and sisters. We don't know how bad it went, but he truly hated them. And when God said, I want you to go there and to tell them that if they don't repent, destruction's coming, Jonah got on a boat and going the opposite direction. And we know the story, right? You know, he, he was the most unwilling guy. Yet God threw swallowing him in a fish and eventually he went. But his, his concept was, I'm going to say as little as possible, as quickly as possible. But it was a large city. It took three days even walking full speed to get through there. But all he said is 40 days comes destruction, nothing more, and just kept walking. But they repented. Even the animals had sackcloth and ashes on it. <laughs> Not even the animals could eat. Everybody repented in sackcloth and ashes and, and fasting. And Jonah went up on the side of the mountain to wait for the fire to come down and destroy that place. And God didn't do it. And in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, oh, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know... Now he sounds sort of disgusted about this. I know you, God. You are gracious and a merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents from doing harm. Jonah was a man of a tremendous faith. 
And he knew the nature of God. And he knew that you could take somebody that was days away of being divinely judged by God. And he knew if he went there, the odds were in their favor. Because God was so full of compassion. He was so forgiving that these people that were the, the, the worst of the worst on planet earth in all of history, next to Sodom and Gomorrah itself, he knew that if they had an inkling that they would get it, that even though they were marked for damnation, that God would forgive them. And Jonah knew it. That's why I did, went the opposite direction. Because I know you, God. Once people get just a little understanding of you, they're overwhelmed with your abundant graciousness, your mercy, your slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness. This is Jonah's full description. I know you. <laughs> I know, and, and they're going to get it too. And they understand that you're gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. They're, they're gonna, it's gonna, your spirit is going to be there and they'll repent. They'll respond to that. Psalms 106. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this. But it's about when they would take their babies and heat up their various gods of Dagon and and, and the other gods, and they would burn their babies to death in the arms of these metal gods in order to please these pagan gods of the Philistines. And in Psalms 106, I'm not going to read it all because it's long, but he describes how they constantly, in verse 38 there of Psalms 106, he says, they shed in some blood the blood of their sons and their daughters whom they sacrificed the idols of Canaan. Verse 37, I skipped that. Even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. And this happened several times. And they were so far away from God, they couldn't remember who God was. They couldn't remember the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God would send them a prophet and remind them, hey, this is your God. Oh, okay. <laughs> and they'd repent. And then God would begin blessing them again. And then they would go back into this demon worship. And it happened many, many times. And God kept delivering them, kept forgiving them. In verse 44 and 45, nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry. And for their sake, he remembered his covenant, relented according to the multitude of his mercies. Back when I was in college, I worked at a pharmacy and this guy came in and he was right out of the 1960s, 70s mafia looking playbook. This was in San Diego, but you could tell he was from New York or somewhere like that. I mean, the coat, the hat, the whole thing. And a uh, very dark presence. And, and he was looking for a book to read and I was there going, hey, have you ever read Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey? No, I have no idea what he was talking about. And, uh, and I said, you know, it's about the end times and the Lord's return and, oh, I don't want anything about God. And um, I said, yeah, you know, God, God is, I began to share a few things about God and God's love and forgiveness and, and uh, he's just like, <laughs> There's no way God's going to forgive me for what I've done. And I started saying, you know, there's no sin no de so deep. There's no sins no, so numerous that God still can't forgive. And in essence, he got very mad at me. And he just said, look, if God forgave me. I wouldn't respect him because I am a wicked person. And I would just say for your health, don't talk to me anymore. And I just remember that putting such an impression on me. But since then, I've met some people that really struggle with their faith to believe that God can forgive their numerous or deep sins. And now I say to them, oh my goodness, you sacrificed little tiny babies to demons, haven't you? They're going, what? Are you crazy? 
I've never done anything like that. Oh, okay. Well, Psalm 106 tells us even if you did, God would forgive you. So obviously what you've done is not greater than that. (laughs) It tells us in Romans 5 verse 20, where sin abounded, grace abounded, not just more, but what? Much more. So in God's character, in God's nature, the culture of grace is greater than any human frailty, weakness, sin, perversion, wickedness, that, that it's just the reality of God's grace. It goes deeper and more powerful than the most sinful sinfulness of man. We see that in Nineveh. We see that with the children of Israel, knowing God and, and, and still sacrificing their babies to demons, falling away so far from God after doing so much for them. In Proverbs 24, 16, it says, The righteous man falls seven times and rises again. Now, I would have thought the Proverbs would have said, No man, that's a righteous man, falls seven times to begin with. (laughs) Seven being the number of completion. And in essence, he's saying that righteous men are still horrible sinners but they're still considered righteous by God. And and so even the most righteous person that's ever lived, you know, Enoch or Daniel or Joseph, I don't know, Joshua, whoever that person was, they still sinned way too much. They still struggled in this human flesh as Paul said, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. I, oh, I, I just, there's no hope for this flesh. Every man has felt that and understands that. This is where we have to have faith in the grace of God. In Psalms 103, 2, it says, bless, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Verse 4, who redeems your life from destruction. Amen from that? Who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. That's our crown. In Psalms 103 verse 13 and 14. As a father pities his children. So the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. We're just dirt, right? He made Adam out of dirt. And 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 God is saying... I understand the issue of the sinfulness of man in these human bodies. And it doesn't shock me. It doesn't get me down. It's like a, it's like a father to his child. He's just going to constantly think the best of us. You know, the neighbor comes over and says, Man, your kid just threw a baseball through my window. He's got a great arm, doesn't he? You know, it's like, yeah, he's, he can really throw well. That's a tough window to hit. Um, it, it's just, this is God. He's always going to be for us. And he, he remembers when he looks at us that, that we are little sinner machines. Our whole body, Paul said in Romans 7, is sold under uh, corruption. Sold under bondage to corruption. That, that our bodies are in the world we live in. And Satan and all the arrows and the temptations he's throwing. That his plan is not to try to get you to get in some program where you're this holiness, you know, perfect machine. Try harder and pray more. And, you know, it, it's, it's not his plan. His plan is just to say, Walk by faith in my grace, knowing my loving kindness and tender mercies are your crown. And just keep keeping your eyes on me. I've got this culture that you're living in where your sin abounds. My grace will abound more. I've got you. Get your eyes on me. Yes, you fall flat in your sin and your weakness and your struggle. You can get up though every time. Because my grace is sufficient 
for whatever weakness you're wrestling with. This is the Lord. This is the, the culture that he brought. It begins with grace. Matter of fact, in Acts 20 verse 24, Paul says, I brought to you the gospel of the grace of God. He actually titled when we say we're going to go witness or we're going to go share the Lord. Paul said, that's the name of the gospel is grace. We came and brought the grace of God to you. In Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, a passage we all probably know well. By grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that anyone should boast. What He says, how is that first step when a person gets born again? It's when they have faith in the grace. It's when they say, I believe in a God who loves me. I believe in a God who, when I come to him, he's going to keep me forever. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will what? Not perish but have everlasting life. He didn't say whoever believes in him has a better chance than the other people not to perish. And it is setting you on a possible course. You know, the first year, probably 10%. And, you know, 10 years down, maybe you're at 20%. And eventually you really start living a holy life. You can be, you know, 80, 90% certain that, that there's a chance you'll have eternal life. That's not, what, that's not the gospel, right? The gospel is in and of itself saying, once you believe in Jesus, and what? Grace upon grace. And of his fullness, we've all received. Grace upon grace. So faith is having our salvation comes when we have faith in Jesus' grace. That where our sin abounds, his grace will abound more. That no matter how difficult it is, living in this wretched body, and we feel the opposite of holy, opposite of righteous. Especially as we read the Bible, we realize how beautiful and pure and righteous and lovely and kind, and merciful, and, and, and I'm so the opposite of all those things. And, and God wants to receive a guy that's like that. And it's like, no. The moment we have faith in the grace, God grabs us, and he says, I'm giving you the gift of being born again right now. My spirit living in you in this horrible, wicked, sinful body. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? What's Paul answered in Romans 7? Thanks be through Christ Jesus our Lord. It didn't even make sense. It's like, what? You didn't answer the question. It's just like, Jesus. Jesus. What's the very next verse in Romans 8? There's no condemnation to those in Christ. That's it. That, that he's grabbing us and he didn't declare us righteous and then put us on a probationary period saying, okay, I'm going to give you my righteousness and I'm going to carry you for the first three years. But at the end of three years, I need to start seeing some of your own righteousness. You know, it's going to start going down, you know, 99% me and 1% you and then 98% me and 2% you. And we're going to reevaluate this after a decade. By then, it should be about 30% of your righteousness, and you only need about 70% of mine. It's just never the case, is it? He declared us righteous, and he says, I'm going to keep doing that every day until you're in your new body that wants righteousness. Then we won't be saying, oh, wretched man that I am in this body of flesh. We're going to say, how holy and righteous I am in this heavenly body that the Lord's given me for eternity. Imagine a body that actually wants to live holy. And so 
In Ephesians 5, he says the Lord's active. He's taking the responsibility. He's washing us in the water of the word to make sure we're without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle. That just like a shepherd with the sheep, you know, the shepherd goes out with 100 sheep. He comes back with 98. He's like, well, those couple of sheep were just really bad. Oh, okay. It's not your fault. Right? I mean, the shepherd's going to say, dude, you're responsible for all 100 of those sheep to get them back. In the same way, Christ says, as the husband for the wife, I am the one taking responsibility to present you before the Father without spot or blemish or any such thing. This is why he said, get it. Don't forget his mercies. Don't forget his grace. He is taking the responsibility as the father to the children. He's the one that's going to heal all your wickedness and forgive all of your sins. Because he's the one that called you. He's the one, since he's the author of it, he's going to be the finisher of it. Christ didn't die on the cross for the 10% of sins he died for. He, he died on the cross, paying for all of our sins, that every single person that will believe in him will not perish. Not 90% of the people who believe in him will not perish. Right? The good shepherd goes out and he leaves, he loses none. So faith in the grace. And so that's all we need. Faith and continued faith in the grace. It's not of ourselves. It's not of our works. In Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God is revealed. Okay, God, all right, I want to be righteous. How, how? From faith to faith, as it's written, the just, those who are declared righteous by God, shall live by faith. It's faith in the grace. It's faith trusting that the Lord is, is, is going to be faithful. That he's going to do it. He who began this good work, he's going to do it. First John 1 John 1.9, when we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and even all those sins we don't know about. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our, our whole salvation's based on the nature on the love, on the kindness, on the mercies, and the power of God. And our mistake is, is to diminish that. Well, God's merciful, and then we picture like the most merciful person we can imagine and say God's a notch above that. God's mercies are, are beyond what we can even imagine. You know, my mom used to say, you're testing my patience. And we are all testing God's patience. Yes, I declared you righteous, but I didn't think I was going to be putting up with this. And it's like, no, his mercies are new every morning. We're never even coming to the imaginations of the limitations of his patience. As the heavens are high above the earth, so is his ways beyond our ways. And to have that constant faith in his grace. You know, I think of the faith of the thief on the cross. That guy had faith. I mean, his whole life, he's just incorrigible. Arrested, rearrested, beaten, prisoned. Finally, the Roman government says a death penalty to a thief. I don't think that was common practice. But there was a couple of guys, you let them back out, <laughs> you're going to regret it. They, they just cannot stop themselves. And we find these guys wrapped up with, with the whole community mocking Jesus. If you look at all the Gospels, both of the thieves are joining in with the multitude on their way to their own death. That's a pretty callous heart. And then even on the cross, they're mocking Jesus. You know, hours away from your own death, being tortured, and you have energy to mock the guy next to you, that's, that's pretty wicked. 
But this guy who lived his whole life as a thief, done nothing righteous, and now he's dying on a cross, he's not getting off that cross. He can't, it's not like he's going to say, I repent, and the rest of my life, in the next 20 years, I'm going to make up for it. He wasn't getting off that cross. He was going to die. But what does it say in Romans 10? If you believe Jesus is Lord and God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. If you compare the Gospels, he did say that. Jesus, Lord, remember me. When, future tense, you come into your kingdom. And Jesus being full of graciousness and kindness, he didn't say, right, you would like that, wouldn't you? You're not very compatible. You weren't nice to me. Think I'm going to let you go to heaven? Jesus there on the cross, true to himself with nails driven through his hand, incredible pain. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. That guy had faith that Jesus would forgive him, receive him, and take him to heaven with him forever and ever, knowing he could never do one thing with his feet, <laughs> never do one thing with his hand. He had never go to church, never read a Bible, never do a good work to another fellow man. But yet, by faith alone, separate from works, not of himself, as a gift from God, he would have eternal life. You see, this is such a picture of somebody who has faith in the grace. And this is how we continue as a Christian. And John, in Romans 5, Verse 1 and 2, therefore having been justified by faith, we now have, what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him also we have access by faith into what? Into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We're not wallowing around. We're not coming to God, oh God, I'm such a sinner, I don't know, you put up with me, you know, forgive me, I'm such a worm. God, God says, he's not rejoicing in that. Imagine if your kids came that way to you. <laughs> My kids are like, dad, throw me the keys, come on. How about asking? You know, why don't you, why don't you have a seat and tell me about your life a little bit? Am I, am I mad at the kids? For being so demanding? No, I mean, kids, kids ask way more than you're ever going to say yes to. You know, the five-year-old kid comes in at 10 o'clock at night, supposed to be at bed three hours ago. Can I have some ice cream? It's like, I can't believe you're out of bed. Of course, I'm not going to give you ice cream. You're the worst dad in the world, you know. I mean, are you, it's just the, our nature, isn't it? And so he, he's saying, we now into grace, we have such a comfortableness with God. We have such a confidence in God. There's nothing we're going to do that's going to bum him out or upset him or make him want to cut you off. He's our father. He's our husband. He's our shepherd. He's our friend. This is why it says in Hebrews 4, we know this passage. In verse 14 to 16, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize within our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come how? Boldly into the throne of what? Grace that we may attain mercy and find what? Grace to help us in our time of need. You know, we see in Revelation the glassy sea before the throne. Now we know what it is. It's an ocean of grace. <laughs> and we're not wimping in. We, in this grace, we stand. And now we come boldly into the throne of grace going, God, I blew it. I need, I need to be cleansed, white as snow, without blemish, without spot, right now. <laughs> We're not wallowing in going, God, I told you last week I would never do it again. I, I told you, God, that I'd be better. I told you I'd try harder. Can you, can you just one more time forgive me, God, and I'll never ask again. That's not faith, and it's not biblical reality, is it? 
Paul says right to the end, man, I'm striving to grab a hold of what God's grabbed a hold of me for, but I am not perfect. And, and, and he, he made it clear, being in this sinful body is a bummer thing, but yet it doesn't overcome us because we have faith in this grace upon grace that's greater and deeper and wider. And, and it, is, it is so powerful this kindness of God towards us, this unstoppable kindness, that we can stand, that we can come boldly because we have this kind of relationship with the Lord. Well, grace is enough. First Peter 5.10 tells us, but may the God of all grace, who has called us to eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and that God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul, you're bummed out because you're not being strong enough in the grace. You're like going, I'm weak, I'm poor, I'm sickly, I'm sinful, and, 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 and I, I just, I give up. And God is saying, no. You've been reduced to get your eyes on the Lord and rely upon the grace like you've never relied upon it in your lifetime. And Paul tells young Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.1, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You're bummed out, Timothy. You're not sharing the faith. You're wanting to deny me. You're struggling because it's this simple. You and the church with you come back to the grace. Talk about the grace. Learn of the grace. Stand in the grace. Come boldly to a throne of grace to get all the grace you need. In 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore that geared up the loins of your mind being sober, rest your hope fully, what? Upon the grace that's going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. Not only on this earth, not only in these sinful bodies are we going to focus on the grace, but throughout eternity. In Ephesians 2, verse 6 and 7, he raised us up together. This is he saying, he's already seen it. Made us sit together with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of what? His grace and his what? Kindnesses towards us in Christ Jesus. It's going to, that three billion years, we're going to just start scratching the surface of God's grace and his kindnesses towards us. And then we're just going to keep soaking it up. We're going to go swimming in that throne of grace. <laughs> we're going to grow and grow in, in understanding in our own lives of grace. Interesting, the last verse in the Bible. What do you think it's about? <laughs> Revelation twenty two twenty one, And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Final word, amen. I mean, the Lord had, a, he could have ended the Bible in, with a lot of verses, right? So therefore have hope in eternal heaven. Therefore, I mean, there's a lot of things he could have said. But the last verse of the Bible is saying simply this. It's the grace. It's the grace of Christ that's going to get you from A to Z. So what are we to create here as a church? This culture of grace. This culture of incredible kindness. In 1 Peter 4.10 it says, Let each one of you receive a gift, minister to one another as good stewards of the, what? Manifold grace of God. Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be with grace. Season with salt. I mean, how do you ought to answer one another? In Luke 4, 22, they marveled at the gracious words that proceeded out of the mouth of Jesus. So I bring us back to John 1, 16. We are all to receive the fullness of the grace 
We're to live in the presence of Jesus in this world of grace, in this culture of grace with Christ, and then upon grace. And so the church, when people come here and how we treat one another, we're not to be frustrated with each other's humanness. We're not to have this mindset going, hey, I thought you were a Christian and what are you talking like that for? Weakness like this for? Struggling like this for? You're not being the per No, it's, it's grace. You know, in the Jesus movement, I, I break it down. The reason we came an hour early, the reason we stayed two hours late, there's such a love. There's such a grace. We were just so full that God's predestined us before the foundations of the world that we would just be swimming in his grace now and with each other and through eternity. Some guy said he'll pick you up and he's an hour late. You're not sitting there going, I'm going to give him a piece of mine, mine once he gets here. It just never even occurred to us. We're just looking for people to witness to and reading our Bibles and singing songs and the guy picks us up. He, he, he's not even going to apologize. He's like, man, I had the most amazing time. Got stuck in traffic, but I just started worshiping. And man, it was the best worship time I've had. And, and your, your reply is, man, me too. We, we weren't sitting around. We were just in God's timing. We were never an hour late. We were always in God's perfect timing. We were always, God was in control. And, and we just never thought of being mad at each other's humanness, weaknesses, struggles. It was like, hey, dude, you're struggling. Let me just give you a big hug and pray for you. And God loves you and I love you. And yeah, we all struggle, man. Don't worry about it. Just let's just cry out to God right now. It was just always that sense that you're going to be received and loved and kindness dumped on you. No condemnation, no judgment. Man, this is, this is the gospel, the good news. This is where we're to live as Christians, just in the grace of God. Amen.